0: Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live, and tonight we have joining us Thomas G. Waits from movies like The Thing, The Warriors, and Justice for All, and so many more. Thomas, thank you so much for being our guest tonight. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. How are you doing, John?
0: I'm doing great, and it's an always an honor for me to talk to somebody who I watched growing up on the screen, I particularly enjoy that. I hope that doesn't make you feel old. I'm not intending. No, to no, no,
1: no. It yeah, is such. I, a, I'm very grateful.
0: I. It is such an honor to talk to you. So let's just get started. And I want to start with the Warriors. Um, I was born and raised in New York City in the mid 70s. Okay. I was very young in 79 when the Warriors came out. I was like five. I turned five that year. How prevalent were gangs in New York City at that time?
1: They were uh, prevalent. There was gang culture. In point of fact, the film itself is based on a true story where in the early 70s, some dude up in the Bronx decided, hey, um, let's do this. Let's get all the gangs together from all the five boroughs and meet in the Bronx. And they did. They gathered. And he gave a speech, not dissimilar to Cyrus's, Cyrus, where he says, look, there's more of us than there are of the cops. And if we just get it together, we could take over the city. Like this is literally documented on documented footage. And then the police come charging in from all different sides and uh, they break it up. And
0: uh, I did not yeah. know that. This is yeah. 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 I did not know that. And that, oh, I always found that curious because The Warriors is one of like the first movies I have ever seen. And by the time I saw it, it was in the early 80s. And, you know, you're still a kid. You're not exposed to what's going on outside. So by the time I became aware, a teenager, I never came across a gang problem in New York. Uh, We always heard about it, especially when you went into the 90s of it being like more out on the West Coast.
1: Well, in in the 80s, you know, that's when this sort of Disney-esque fascism took over the city and... You know, it cleaned it up. It changed everything. It, it became a completely different city. But back in the 70s, you had to carry a stick with you. When you oh, walked yeah. To
0: I mean, I remember, I mean, I definitely remember the trains, the graffiti, and that was very, you know, spot on in the movie as well. And
1: the gangs were real. In fact, at one point, I think we were in Brooklyn. It might have been Queens, but at some point, there was a real gang that, were like, hey, what are you doing on our turf? <laughs> and they had to send the producers and a bunch of PAs up there and, you know, start paying these guys off to let us work. Damn. They they were like, you know, the, I don't know if you're allowed to curse on this show. Yeah, you are. Uh, they were like, who are these fucking pussy actors in our neighborhood? We're going to kick their fucking asses. Yeah. The. They did not like us being there and they did not like us pretending like we were
0: part. Legal. Of that. yeah I totally, yeah I mean I, I totally get. You, you,
1: you have to cut your teeth to become a real guy. I mean I was in a gang in my own life in my real life and growing up outside of Philadelphia, a place called Bristol, we had a gang called the Bristol terrorist gang. Which was very, not nearly as tough as New York gangs. But, you know, we did, there was some scuffling and uh, we got into some
0: trouble. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Now, you play Fox in the Warriors. And within each gang, you had a hierarchy. You had the leader, you had the war chief, and then you had the soldiers. I always saw Fox as the brains of the Warriors, right. okay? Right. With Cleon, we didn't see it as much because Cleon did not last very long. But especially when Swan took over, Michael Beck, uh, you, we saw, mm-hmm. you know, you guys conversing on the trip from the Bronx to get back home to Coney Island. How did you perceive your character when you first read for Fox? And is that how you saw him as well?
1: Yeah he well originally you know um, he was not only the scout and the the intelligence if you will yeah but i was supposed to be the romantic lead oh yeah and uh, then i uh, got into a great uh, disputation with the director i became a big pain in the ass, and he fired me. <laughs> and uh, it was quite a blow, and um, something that I have remorse about to this day, because I was just very difficult. Yeah. I was a difficult... I'm a difficult person anyway, but I was particularly difficult when I was young, because I... you know, I guess I thought I was...
0: i don't know well yeah when we're young we think we know everything right it's only when we get older that we're like you know what looking back we really didn't know shit.
1: (laughs) and and i had just enough talent to be dangerous (laughs) yeah
0: well yeah you have to you you appeared in that span (laughs) in a lot of great movies now the warriors had a four million dollar budget now for back then that is not a small deal uh for you know and it was a paramount film uh, at, To that point in your career, was that the biggest budget film that you've been on?
1: That was the biggest budget film i have been on to that point in my career, yeah. Uh, i have gone on to do much bigger budget oh, yeah. films.
0: The but Thing was five times that there, amount. Yeah, I'm
1: sure. Uh, and then before that, I did a film for Midwest... Films Incorporated, Uh, Joan Micklin-Silver was one of the few female directors, she had done Hester Street and uh, Head Over Heels with the great actor John Hurd and Mm -hmm. great actress Mary Beth Hurt, and um, she and her husband had this film company, and they did a film, my first feature film was called On the Yard, which is a prison film, and it's actually... Pretty good. And uh, I got some attention from that. And I think that's why they brought me in for the Warriors is because uh, it got a lot of strong critical notice.
0: Oh, yeah. Now, you you got your start, according to IMDb, at least, on All My Children back in the early 70s. Going back then, where independent films were not as prevalent as they are today, how difficult was it to break into feature films back in the 70s? With Because you basically had to do it with big studio films. Nowadays, independent films are a lot more prevalent. It's easier to get a, a, a role somewhere. How difficult was it back then?
1: Well, you know, starting... As an actor at any time is difficult. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was difficult when Marlon Brando started. Uh, the big difference is back then you had to cut your teeth in the theater. So I had done some regional theater. Um, I think I worked at Center Stage in Baltimore. And again, back then, you know your reviews got passed around from agents the casting director if you had a good agent uh and i had a very good agent by the name of jeff hunter and um i did a play at the Spoleto festival in south carolina uh simon gray play and you know so i was getting reviewed by the new york times and time magazine when i was yeah. 21. nice so it wasn't th- that far of a stretch for someone like me to get a call to come in to audition for a a feature film but i didn't do all my children until i was i don't know what it says on imdb i never looked up anything uh
0: about i think anyone. it says 19, like seventy or something around that and then your next thing after that there's a big six-year gap i think 1970 was all my children and then your next credit is in 76 i don't remember <laughs> i don't remember doing that
1: <laughs>
0: now from it the Warriors. now from the warriors you went into injustice for all okay that came before the thing right. that, now that has al pacino who by 79 al pacino I mean, The Godfather was out. The Godfather 2 was out. He was like the hottest item in... Dog a ho- Day Afternoon, Serpico. Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, Al Pacino was like God. Yeah. I mean, uh- he, he was, you know, not just a great actor, but there was a certain enigma yeah. about Al. You know, there was a mystique. It was like Al Pacino's doing a film. And... uh so my aging you know, so I, I had been fired from the Warriors, which is a very difficult thing for any actor to overcome, and I don't wish it on anybody, but I brought it on myself and I deserved it. Uh but luckily um you know, well I've made amends to Walter and he's forgiven me, thankfully. But I was just a jerk, you know, I was a kid and I thought I knew everything and uh anyway I was frightened because I thought, you know, how am I going to you know, bounce back from this? Yeah. But then, you know, people said to me, look, all great actors are a pain to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of cheered me up a little bit. And then my agent called me and said, Al Pacino's in town doing a film called Injustice for All. Uh, Norman Jewison is directing and uh barry levinson who had done mm. nothing up to that point, wrote the script with his then wife valerie and uh they want to see you for this part and i said well am i going to get to audition with al and he said yeah Al's going to audition everybody and wow. i was like oh my god so this is a crazy story so i get to martin bregman's office that was al pacino's manager at the I get to Martin Bregman's office and I'm like, uh, you know, I sign in and I see, you know, the great Al Pacino come out of the audition room and he goes up to the the secretary and he says, listen, I'll be right back. I I have a dentist appointment I have to go to. (laughs) And don't ask me where I got the balls to do this. But I go, excuse me, I'm supposed to be auditioning with you. And he was so like, oh geez, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Can can we give you another time? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, give me another time. I mean, I I came here to audition with you.
0: Was he fucking with you with that? I mean.
1: No, he gave me, he, he made the secretary give me the next morning at 11 o'clock. No, okay. He was having a lot of work done on his teeth. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a great story. Um, I mean that just going back to that, going back to that time frame. Just the fact that the lead of a movie is the one auditioning for the rest of the cast. Yeah, that even today, that's like I mean,
1: unheard
0: of. Yeah, maybe Tom Cruise, maybe as an executive producer on a lot of his films, maybe he gets to do that. But I never even heard of that. So, let's go on to, I mean, one of the... Yeah, so,
1: so, the next morning I come in, so I called my agent and I said, you know, Al was going to the dentist, so they gave me another appointment for tomorrow to be in there, and he's like, okay, I'll check this out. So, it's sure enough, it all checked out, and I showed up the next morning, and I mean, from the moment that he and I started working, it was fire.
0: John. Wow. It was like
1: walking through fire. Damn. And uh, we lit up the room, and he looked at me, and he shook his head, and Norman Jewison was smiling from ear to ear. Great director, Norman Jewison, one of the great film directors of all time. And, And they called me, and I was being offered a play at the same time at the public theater, a Thomas Babe play that was with um, Richard Chamberlain. Oh. Yeah. And it was the lead. It was the lead in the play. And it was a musical. And uh, I was very excited about doing it, but I couldn't do the play and the movie, so I had to turn down the play at the public theater, which uh, they never they never asked me to do a play <laughs> <laughs> ever since. I guess they... Uh, Hold uh, the drugs. anyway Anyway, um, so I got this part. And uh, there I was. You know, when I was 16, I saw The Godfather and I became Al Pacino for about a week, okay? I mean, I thought I was Michael Corleone. <laughs> and now here I am. Uh, I was 23, what, eight years later. Yeah. And I'm going to be working with it. Unreal. Very interesting because, you know, I was really, I was calm in the audition, but I was nervous on the set. And the first two scenes went pretty well. And, you know, Al taught me a lot. I mean, he, he's a, he's an actor's actor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, Tommy, you have a beautiful talent and i went home and wrote that in my diary i have a stack of diaries in my closet someday maybe i'll write a book and i just thought you know i've i've died and gone to heaven i've arrived the greatest actor in the world next to marlon brando has told me that i have a beautiful talent
0: that is special yeah it was really
1: and and he especially he taught me he said just because they say cut don't stop the scene keep going yeah this, this keep get into the character before the scene and stay in the ca- and so i got into it man i was into the whole the whole thing with him and uh i really wasn't doing the scene very well it was a big climactic scene where i get shot and uh, i remember the 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 makeup man coming towards me and going You're not listening. You're not listening. And I'm like, "I, I know, I know. I wasn't listening. I wasn't doing my job. So Norman sent everybody out of the room. And, you know, movies are very expensive. Yeah. Now they were very expensive. Then he sent everybody out except for me, Al, and Norman. And we sat down on the bed and he said okay, now let's read the scene like we've never seen it before. And I just breathed a deep sigh of relief and I was like, I'm so confused. And Al looked at me and he said, confusion is a very good state of mind for an actor to be in. And then I was ready and I nailed it. Awesome. after After take, one take. The master shot, the medium shot, the close-up, the next close-up, this close-up, reverse. Everything was one, one take, one. And I don't know if you noticed, but I was squatting down
0: yeah.
1: in the scene. Yeah. I stayed yeah. squatted down for the whole afternoon. So that line when I say I have to get up because my legs are killing me, yeah. that was because I hadn't moved the entire afternoon. <sighs> I stayed in that spot. And it really, we're doing the scene and I'm looking at Al and I go, I, I have to, I can't stand it. I have to get." And he's like, no, no, Jeff, no. And then I get shot.
0: Damn. Oh man. It's just amazing to hear that story and the impact that Al Pacino had on you and just how his words brought you back, not only to the character, but onto the set, into the movie, into the feel and the flow of things. That's just a great story now and
1: and norman jewison allowing that
0: yeah yeah i mean
1: having the confidence in his actors and the giving us the permission to fail yeah so that we could succeed that means a lot yeah and it it, you know i remember when i was a kid and i went to watch the screening of it i watched my scene and i made myself cry I mean, how does that happen? Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, yeah. And, you
1: know, I'll I'll tell you another amazing story. I'm a musician, you know. uh, I have a band, the Thomas Q H Project. But back then, I just played by myself in clubs down on Bleecker Street. And um, I was playing one night at Kenny's Castaway's. It was right on the corner of Thompson and Bleecker. And this young girl comes up to me and she goes, Are you Thomas Waits? And I said, yeah. And she goes, you you have to prove it to me. Show me your driver's license or something. I said, okay. And I show her my driver's license. She goes, come outside with me. And she takes me outside. She was from Indiana or someplace. She had run away from home with her boyfriend, who I guess was a junkie or something. And they had no place to sleep, so they went to the drive-ins. Uh-huh. And she watched my scene in Injustice for All and it made her cry hysterically. And she ran to the concession stand and called her mother collect and asked her mom to come and pick her up.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's amazing <laughs> to hear that your role had just an impact on one person's life. At least one. Yeah. That that's yeah. a, that's a that's an amazing story. Um, so that's a great bounce back from the warriors and how that turned out to getting Injustice for all. And that brought you back into the game. So going on to 82, you cross paths somehow with John Carpenter and you get cast as windows in the thing. How did that all come about?
1: Okay. So I did a lot of theater in between. Uh, you know, I'm a, a real actor, you know, I have a craft, mm-hmm. I have a technique, and I was trained at Juilliard. I I, I know what I'm doing, you know. So between uh, the Warriors, uh, well, Al Pacino did a three-person play called American Buffalo, mm-hmm. and uh, I was away doing Shakespeare for the summer in Cleveland, and I'm a classically trained actor. And they called me up and they said, look, Al, wants want you to come in and audition for American Buffalo. And uh, so they flew me in and I auditioned and, you know, every actor in the world wanted that part. Yeah. Because it was Al Pacino, the great Clifton James, and then the kid, whoever the kid was going to be, you know, Matt Dillon, Kevin Bacon, every great actor of that era was dying to get that role. And I got it. And uh, it was a huge hit. You know, the lines were, I don't know if you know New York, but the lines were around the block all the way out to Sixth Avenue. Yeah. uh, On Bleecker Street every day to get tickets. It was just sold out. This thing could have run forever. And um, John and Kurt were in town auditioning for the thing. And they, you know, they said, well, I guess what's the hot play to see? And they came to see American Buffalo, and then they requested me to come in and audition. Nice. And I really, you know, didn't know who John Carpenter was. I'd heard of Halloween. I certainly knew who Kurt Russell was. But uh, I really didn't think that much of the part. I just really liked John. And, uh, it turned out to be a very fortuitous decision on my part, because definitely (laughs) listen. There are a lot of actors who have done way better than me that are way more famous, way more wealthy, way more successful than me. But I have been in not one, but two cult films, which
0: is extraordinary. I would not call The Thing a cult film. I would call it a mainstream classic. The Warriors, for me, is a cult classic. I see, I see. uh, But for me, The Thing, I mean, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people have seen it, where The Warriors has its cult following, and it continues to live from generation to generation. Yeah, Uh, it sure does. uh, But The Thing... uh, I mean also it had like five times the budget of the Warriors it was like 20 million dollars to make back in 19, yeah. in the early yeah. 80s and the cast all you guys were so oh, amazing Kurt Great. Russell uh, you t-
1: David, David Clennon, Joel Polis uh, you know Peter Maloney Dick Dicehart, yeah. Wilfred Grimley you had the greatest actors I thought they were the greatest actors uh, from both coasts. It was so well cast.
0: Tomorrow, God. coincidentally, my guest is going to be Keith David. You're kidding. That was purely coincidental. The way that worked out. You tonight <laughs> uh, and tomorrow I talked to Keith. So
1: so funny. Uh, he and I were in Juilliard together.
0: <laughs> you guys being on that set, uh, supposed. It was
1: crazy. We showed up on the set. I go, what the fuck are you doing here? And he's like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> we used to smoke pot in the fucking stairwells at Juilliard. That's terrible.
0: <laughs> what was it like on that set with Carpenter, all you guys, an oh all-male cast? Uh, was it crazy? Did you guys all get along? I mean, what was it like on that set?
1: Yeah, we, we, we got along. John is... <clears throat> What makes John Carpenter a great director is not just his incredible eye, which he has, and not just his incredible ear for music, which is obvious mm-hmm. and evidenced in the many movies that he scored. But he has this uncanny ability. There's a lot of pressure on a director. I just directed my own first feature film called Target, a post-pandemic sexual comedy which I'll talk about later. But, yeah. you know, there's a lot of pressure on the director. But he never let it get to him. And he never let it get to us. He made it like every day going to work was like a party.
0: Yeah. It was like,
1: I can't wait to get to work. And uh, we told stories and we laughed and we joked around and we played pranks on one another. At one point they bet me this gorgeous girl was walking across Universal parking lot and they all bet me 50 bucks if I could get a date with her. (laughs) So I like, you know, slick my hair back and trim my beard. I asked the makeup guy to look at me and I go walking over to him like, hey babe. such a loser and she went out with me she actually went out with me her name was Jeannie Bradley I'll never forget it to this day but I won the bet and the, it was just the funnest set oh you man. could ever possibly imagine it yeah it, it, it's I, one of the greatest times of my life to be honest with you.
0: it looked that way I mean that movie is it's gonna live on forever and uh it doesn't
1: mean we weren't serious
0: oh no no
1: you know Kurt is a very serious professional actor who knows his game, yeah. And John is a A list director and knows his game. But there's a lot of sitting around in movies. If you know anything about doing movies, it's you sit around and, and wait you know, six hours and you work two hours, you mm-hmm. know? uh, because they're always lighting and relighting, especially with that movie <laughs> with all the special effects, which were real not CGI.
0: Yeah. Practical effects.
1: Right, exactly. And, you know, the great A. Wilford Brimley, who anybody in the industry that's ever known him will tell you was a... Maybe he's
0: an amazing... A man movie. of...
1: Yeah. And he was a... The, yeah, he was a real cowboy. hmm You know, he actually... Like, whatever the fuck cowboys do, lasso horses and cows and and all that. Yep. He did all that. Wow. He used to teach us rope tricks in between scenes.
0: Jeez!
1: And he was the greatest storyteller. John would allow the set to stop working. And Wilfred would tell a story about... I don't want to say what he would tell a story about because I don't want to give anyone the wrong impression. But <laughs> needless to say... Everybody stopped working and just listened to Wilfred tell a story. Because he could tell a story like nobody else.
0: That's amazing. hear the story about Carpenter. He just, he he sounded like an actor's director. He knew how to gain everybody's respect and trust. And he trusted his actors. Uh, I've heard a lot of people who, I've talked to several people who have worked with him. And they all describe him the same way. Uh
1: and... he's he's not really an actors director. No. I I would just no, no. He knows how to cast good actors. But he leaves you alone.
0: Hmm.
1: He doesn't get into it. He he watches very carefully. And if it's not working, he'll d- discuss it with you, but he leaves you alone and he lets you find your own way. Like, as a matter of fact, I named the character Windows. Wow. His name was <laughs> Santiago or something like that. It was.
0: How did you come up I'm with like, the name Windows?
1: Then they changed it from Santiago, because obviously I'm not Hispanic, to Simmons. And I'm like, what a boring fucking name. And one day I was on Venice Beach and I saw these green glasses and I wore them into rehearsal. And I... Was we were rehearsing and and I was doing the character with the glasses on and I thought, well, my backstory on the guy is that he really after he finishes his stint in the Antarctic, he's going to go to Hollywood and become a movie star. <laughs> and uh, you know, John let us do our work. He let us create characters. And so I went up to him in the middle of rehearsal and I said, John. I want everybody to call me Windows from now on. (laughs) And he took a drag of his cigarette like this. He went. Looked up at the ceiling. Looked down at the floor. He went, all right. Okay, everybody. From now on, Tommy wants us to call him Windows. Okay? Let's get back to rehearsal. And, And just like that. And Windows was born. And Kurt's name in the movie is Mac. So you have Mac and Windows (laughs) in 1981 before they were even invented. How prescient.
0: Oh my God. These stories are priceless. In the time we have left, I want to hear about your your movie that you wrote and directed. It's a comedy, feature film comedy uh, called Target. So tell us about that.
1: Okay. So during the pandemic, uh, instead of lose my mind, I decided to I, I had gone to school for writing, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went back to school when I was in my 30s. I was married with a child and uh, my wife and five-year-old child just packed up the truck and moved to the Midwest and I got my MFA from the University of Iowa, which is a very prestigious writing school. And I became a playwright and I sold a couple of things and i'd always wanted to write a screenplay and i thought well now's the time to do it yeah so i decided to write a screenplay about a man in his 50s that's going through a sexual identity crisis, <laughs> and his wife is 30 years junior his wife is 30 years his junior he Needs her to have sex with other men in order for him to get around. <sighs> and she's at first just, what? You know, I don't mind fantasizing about it, but you want me to actually do it? So she starts out from that position and then she does a 180. <laughs> <laughs> and she starts really getting into it. And then it just becomes this zany romp with great music and i wrote uh almost all of the songs in the film wow and john mentored me in point of fact Uh, i would call him and there's going to be a screening of it october 21st uh, in santa monica and uh I have to look up the name of the theater because I can't remember. But October 21st, it begins with a V. Are you in L.A., John?
0: I'm in – no, I'm on the East Coast. You're on the East Coast with me. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
1: Can you put it on your site once I –
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll um, put it in the description of all the videos uh, for this interview so people can – It's
1: really good. People, they just laugh. We haven't found a distributor yet. We're still – Seeking distribution because it's not really what you would call a, <laughs> a family movie, but it's really well done. You know, everyone says that uh, it's the production values in it are amazing. Um, it's going to be at the Thymel T H Y M E L E Arts, Thymel Arts, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. On Santa Monica Boulevard okay. in L.A. Awesome. I don't know what time, but, you know, we'll try to find out and let you know. Because uh, I would love uh, for people to come and see it. You know, Chris Chris Noth. Yeah. The great actor Chris Noth from Sex and the City and mm-hmm. Law and mm-hmm. Order and many, many other things. is a friend of mine, and he owns a club called The Cutting Room, which... My band is playing at the Cutting Room on December 7th and uh Chris screened my film at the Cutting Room and like 200 people came and they laughed and had such a great time and you know we really need to laugh because oh, yeah. our country is going through a lot of difficult times as you know and the pandemic has really damaged people. And I just think it's important for people to laugh at themselves. And
0: I think that. I agree with you there. Nobody should take you know, themselves too seriously.
1: Exactly. And I certainly am willing to laugh at myself and uh, have everybody join me for the ride.
0: That's and how it sounds very fascinating. It's, it's really
1: good. And the production values for what I made, I made this movie for under $200,000 and it looks like a $2 million movie.
0: Nice. And I raised the money myself. That is awesome. I mean, with today's technology, even if you're working on the lowest of low budgets, uh, because the readiness of technology, I think there's really no excuse in any budget film to look cheap because, uh, Technology is very affordable and it's out there. And if you get somebody who knows how to do it in the post-production Well, that's phase. the
1: thing, is I had three great producers, Vinny Pesterini, Vinny, Vinnie Pestorini. The Vinnie, Vinnie name sounds so funny coming out of my mouth. <laughs> Steve Konka and uh, Alyssa Rabinowitz, the three people that were the producers. And they found for me... The greatest editor, Jordan Santora, That's Dan Bride, yeah. colorist, and uh, Evan Joseph, the sound cleaner, and then the great Tony Daniels scored the film. You know, with my songs, produced them, and you—you you would think. I would think. I go to the movies all the time. This is a real film. The production. Oh, it is a
0: real film. It is a yeah. real film. I mean. Shoot, I've interviewed people who've made films for under thirty thousand, less than that, ten thousand, eleven yeah, thousand, right, right. all the way up into the mega millions. It is a real film, absolutely it is. Thomas, we're out of time. I want to thank you so much. This has been such thank a you, John fun 40 minutes. Just getting to hear your stories. I love them. Uh the theater is called the Thymel Theater, and when's the date for the screening again?
1: October twenty first. It's a Friday
0: in Santa Mo- in, in Santa Monica, on, right?
1: On Santa Monica Boulevard.
0: On Santa Monica Boulevard. Anyone near the area, go and check it out. It sounds like a real fun treat.
1: And if you're in New York on September twenty second, uh, the Thomas G. Waits project, my band is playing at the Eleventh Street Bar, and then on December seventh, we're playing at the Chris Notes. The cutting room. So come on down and listen to some great original music with a lot of harmony and great storytelling, like I'm doing tonight. Yeah. I, I have a million more stories. You wouldn't I believe. bet
0: you do. I bet you do. Not a lot of people. Can claim the credits that you have, Thomas. So uh, I've you... been
1: very lucky. I'm a lucky boy.
0: Congratulations. You are in just some of the films that I grew up watching and I love them. So thank you so much for being our guest tonight, sharing these great stories. I want to thank our audience, those who are tuning in live, and those who will be watching this later on. On behalf of Thomas G. Waits and myself, stay safe and stay walking. Good night, everybody. Good
1: night.